0: In the early 1500s, a fleet of Spanish ships landed in Mexico, led by a man named Hernan Cortes. They were there to explore and conquer the new world, and Cortes was so committed to the task that upon their arrival, he had all of the ships grounded and dismantled. Some legends even say that he had the ships burned as his men watched from the shoreline. It was a clear message to his men that they were here to stay and they were here to win. There would be no retreat. There would be no going home, no going back. Uh, Cortez even coined this term. He wrote in his journal, we're all in. I think he was the first person to say that. We're all in. Uh, When I was a kid, I grew up going to church and we sang this song in church that kind of gave a similar message. Maybe you know it. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. And you know, I remember, even as a kid, I remember thinking, is it really that serious? I mean, no turning back, not even a little bit? I mean, is, 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 is Christianity kind of like the mafia or some religious cult, you know, that once you're in, there's no leaving, you can't get out? I mean, the ship is burned behind you. You're stuck. Is that what it is? Well, you know, eventually, I actually started following Jesus, and I came to realize what that song was about. Not what I thought, but about something entirely different, about a change in heart, and the Apostle Peter actually gives us a pretty good picture of it right here in 1 Peter chapter 4. See, when Peter talks about following Jesus, he's not talking about an alternative lifestyle, something we can pick up and drop as we see fit. Peter's talking about a new life entirely. Something entirely new, entirely different. And therefore, it's not a religious choice that traps us. Christianity is built on a Savior who frees us. And it's a world of difference between the two. Not something that traps us, but something that actually frees us. And we're going to see what I mean as we walk through it. This is 1 Peter chapter 4. Let's walk back through it, beginning in verse 1. Peter says to the church, Therefore... Since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Peter is speaking to a church in this time. They were the vast minority in a much larger pagan non-Christian culture. They were the outsiders by far, and they were suffering as a result of it. They, uh, these people, these Christians, are being ostracized, they're being mocked, perhaps even they're being beaten and imprisoned uh, as a direct result of their faith. And so Peter right here does something that's common throughout this letter. He's done it many times already. In the midst of their suffering, he points them to the suffering of Jesus, both As our hope, the suffering of Christ is our hope because his suffering is what saves us, but also our example. Be like Christ. Jesus Christ has suffered in his body on this earth and so Peter says, you arm yourselves also with the same purpose. This is our friendly reminder, once again, that if God's own perfect son was not exempt from suffering, then I shouldn't expect to be either. I don't get a free pass somehow. Jesus didn't get a pass on this. But see, Peter uses that phrase. He says, arm yourselves for the purpose of suffering. That's military language. And what he's saying very clearly to us is the Christian life requires grit and courage. This is not a faith for the weak-minded or the faint-hearted. You know, uh, you may have heard of the name Friedrich Nietzsche. Friedrich Nietzsche was a very passionate atheist who was convinced that Christianity came into existence because weak-minded people could not handle the harsh and cruel realities of life. And so we created a a, a religion that made weakness into a virtue. And so see, somehow we can still overcome in the midst of this terrible world. But see, that's not the message of the New Testament. That wasn't the message of Jesus. That wasn't the life of Jesus. The world is cruel, yes, but to be a Christian is to face it with great resolve because that's what Jesus did we follow his example. And Peter tells us something interesting that happens. When we suffer well, when we suffer well, he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of his life no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Now that doesn't mean that somehow Christian suffering makes you perfect or sinless. That's not what Peter's saying here. But it does mean that a person, listen, a person who has truly committed himself, committed herself to Jesus, to the point that we would be willing to suffer for him, that is clearly a person who has left behind the trivial sins of their old life. If Jesus means enough to you that you would suffer for him, clearly a change in your heart has occurred. Now, that doesn't mean that we never sin, of course, we, 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 but we don't, we don't crave it and we don't enjoy it the way we used to. Because something has happened to us. There's a change that's occurred in our lives. We've been captured by something far superior than the things that used to charm me before I met Christ. We've been captured, uh, the Apostle Paul called it, the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Something has come into our lives and things are now different. I want you to think for a second about the things that you would be willing to suffer for. I bet that's not a very long list. And and even to be extreme, to think about it, if it were truly for you a matter of life and death, would you hold on to or would you let go of your purse or your wallet? I know you'd let go of those things. Your life's more precious than that. What about your career or your house? I bet you'd let go of those things too. Are those things worth suffering for? There are precious few things in life worth giving your life for, And Peter is saying here, if you're willing to suffer for Jesus, then clearly you've let go of your old way of life in favor of God's will for your life. It doesn't make you perfect, but something's changed if you're willing to suffer for someone that you can't see, and yet someone who's changed your life. Uh, Sin can't charm us like it used to because Jesus has become our Lord. That's the point here. And Peter's going to really push on this. In verse 3, And this is a verse I think we should really take to heart here. This is one that would apply to us regardless of circumstance. In verse 3, Peter says, For for the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. You know, it helps us to remember... The first people who read this letter, the first Christians that Peter was writing directly to, these people did not grow up Christians. Maybe like a lot of us did. They didn't grow up in a Christian household. They didn't grow up going to church. They grew up in a pagan culture. They grew grew up worshiping idols and practicing cult religion. And the cult religion of the Greco-Roman Empire was not based on the pursuit of moral goodness, strict rules, be good, no their religion, their cult religion, Peter says, was based on uh, wild social and sexual sin. It was based on perverse behavior. And see, when we look at this list of sins, Peter's not talking about a small faction of the community, of the, of the culture. You know, some people like to party, don't hang out with them. No, Peter's talking about the culture at large. This is what the society around you uh, believes and adheres to as normal. This is what they accept as normal. And so let me say this, and you know, it's easy when we read a list of sins like this to think, you know, Peter, all, Peter's just talking about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. He's not talking about all the other stuff, you know. And if, as long as I don't do those things, I'm fine. What Peter's saying here is any, any sin that the larger culture accepts as normal, for them it was this. Of course, you can find this anywhere in in our culture today. We haven't really changed. In fact, maybe we've even intensified it because at least for us, you know, you don't have to go to Las Vegas or even go out in public to find what Peter's talking about here. You can find it on your phone or on the internet in the privacy of your own home. What Peter's talking about is very real and available to us. But broaden that in your mind. Any sin that the larger culture accepts as normal and sees no problem with it, that's the issue at hand here. And then Peter gives us a very clear line in the sand. This is something we've got to take to heart. He says the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out these sinful desires. In other words, this is what you were, but it's not who you are present tense, this is not who you are anymore. And, and, and Peter's not saying, it, just, just drum up a little more willpower against these things. He's saying, you make a clean break because you're no longer the person you were. You're not the same anymore. It's a new identity. And so to be a Christian, from Peter's vantage point here, is certainly to say, I have been saved by the grace of Of God, I I brought nothing to the table. God did not save me by any good work that I did. He saved me as as an absolute gift of his goodness and grace, yes. And at the same time, we say, because of that reality, because I've been saved, I'm done living out the abominable idolatries. That's his phrase. I'm done doing the things that got me lost in the first place. I'm not going to live that way anymore. I'm going to follow Christ. I'm going to, uh, like Cortez, I'm going to burn the ships that brought me here. There's no going back. Whatever sins defined your life before Jesus, why would you now desire them all over again? The Apostle Paul said it. Uh, why, uh, why would you now continue to do the things of which you are ashamed? What benefit were you deriving from the things that now bring you shame and guilt as a Christian? What good has it done you? leave it behind. Um, now I know my own heart and I know yours, or you know yours, I don't necessarily know yours, but you know yours, that this is easier said than done, that we, to be a Christian is not somehow to just march through life unaffected by sin and, and evil desire. My goodness, no. We, in this life, we're never totally free. From what the Bible calls the desire of the flesh. It's always kicking. It's always available to us. It's still on the menu for us. Even if we don't choose it any longer, it's still up there. It's still available to you and to me. But now, see, the, 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 the identity is not defined by it. The identity is defined, uh, Paul says it like this, that we have died to sin and we've been made alive to God. That's Romans 6. Later in Romans eight, Paul says he, "We are no longer defined by the flesh; we're no longer according to the flesh, but we're now defined by the Spirit of God." Um, recognize what what Peter's and Paul are saying here is not just an attitude change; it's not just willpower, trying harder. It's an identity change. Something has happened that's made me fundamentally different from what I was. And so let's just get let's get real for a minute. All right, I, I'm going to. I'm not going to confess a lot of particulars, but I'll tell you guys at least two common responses in my own life to sin. And my guess is that you'll fall somewhere on this spectrum. Two things I will do often when it comes to my sin. First, I, there are sins in my life that, frankly, I just feel helpless against. I mean, these things... I, I've, I've struggled for so long with these issues that, man, I just don't know if I'll ever get over it. I mean, I, every time... Uh, I think I'm, I'm doing better, you know, I'll lapse into into some kind of sin, right? You, you all, we all know what that feels like. And because I feel helpless against it, um, I, I come to this place where, where I just, what's the use of even trying anymore? Maybe you've come to that conclusion. It's, it's a despairing feeling. But there are, all, there are also sins in my life, probably in yours, it's not so much that I'm helpless against them, but I just, I like having them around. I, I coddle certain sins that, frankly, to me, don't seem as bad. And maybe the culture accepts them as normal. And so, you know, no, I'm, I'm not killing anybody here. So what, what's the harm in keeping these things around? And of course, I wouldn't, you know, I don't celebrate those things out loud. But, you know, you, you, you could go through any kind of list of what you might, my, I might consider secondary sins, things that don't really hurt anybody, and so I just, you know, but I like them. You know, I enjoy them. They, I, you know, they're, uh, the, the culture thinks they're cute or laughs about it. So what's the, what's the harm? Um, but in either case, whether it's a besetting sin that I just I can't, I, I just defeats me, or if it's a, a lesser sin in my own mind that I kind of coddle, Peter's point here is this, the time past is sufficient for you to have lived that way. Because of Jesus Christ and his grace, you are now called out of sin and into righteousness. Jesus leads us out of that sin. And so just let me speak to those two issues very quickly here. If you have sin in your life that you feel like just dominates you, and maybe it's been a decades kind of issue for you that you don't know if you'll ever get over, it produces shame, you don't like it, you don't really truly enjoy it, but it has such a grip on you, you can't seem to turn away from it. Can I encourage you in this? That Jesus Christ died for that sin and i know you know that but let me just say it jesus christ died for that sin and not abstractly for the sin he died for your sin he died for you that you would be forgiven of it yes but also that you might be set free from it and the truth is that you are not helpless against it you are not destined to repeat it by faith in jesus christ you are not a lost cause He both forgives you of your sin and he sets you free from the power of it. He transforms your heart and by his grace, he can make you more and more to desire him rather than that sin. It can become for you less palatable and even something that would make you your stomach turn in hatred for it because Jesus Christ wants to bring you into righteousness, not despair. That is possible for you. It may not feel that way, but I'm telling you right now, that you have to, by faith in Jesus, stand up and look that issue in the face and declare to it what Peter says. The time past is sufficient for me to have lived this way. I will not obey the flesh any longer. I will obey Christ. Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. Um, his, everything that you need for the destruction of sin in your life and for the cultivation of righteousness, Jesus Christ has finished it. It's done. There's nothing he's holding out on you. His work is complete. And for us, it may become a matter simply of, do I believe that enough to turn to him? Now, maybe you have sin in your life that it's not, it's not that dominant, but but you're like me, you just kind of coddle it. You like having it around. And, and so, you know, I, I can't give you a complete list on this, but, but you know, any sin that may just doesn't seem all that bad, or it only comes out every now and then, you know, like sins like anger or gossip or envy, strife, conflict, stuff we put on the internet or stuff we look at on the internet, things we laugh about that we know bring God dishonor. I mean, anything at all that I, frankly, I I like to keep it around. I don't, it it doesn't feel all that bad to me. It includes, it keeps me included in certain friend groups or whatever it may be. And so I just coddle it. I keep it around like a pet in my heart and in my home. But I want to say this just as forcefully, that Jesus Christ died for that sin too. He didn't just die for the big stuff or what we esteem as the big stuff. He died for all sin, all of it. And I'm preaching to myself when I say this. But if I like to just keep sin warm in my life, certain things that maybe aren't that big of a deal to me, it's like I look at the cross and just kind of shrug my shoulders. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for the big stuff. But I'm going to hold on to this. I like this too much. I don't want to let go. Um, And I've got to look at that stuff in my life, we all do, and say the time past is sufficient for me to have lived that way. I don't live that way anymore. I'm not going to do even even relatively small things. Why would I desire those things if I know they dishonor the one who shed his blood for my sins? You see the line in the sand here? Um, now, we, we've got to move on to, to more here. Peter's not done talking to us here, but I, I'm, I'm going to circle back to this at the end. This is a heavy issue. We're going to sit in this for a little while. I'm going to bring it back in the end, and, and we'll tie a bow on it. But, but Peter, is, is, he wants to show us something that we have to be mindful of, that if you're going to live this way, if you're, going to, if you're going to love Jesus enough that you'd be willing to suffer for him, if you're going to love Jesus enough that you'd be willing to walk away from your former manner of life, a, a manner of life that perhaps the culture sees no problem with, then there's, there's a risk and a reward that comes with that. The risk isn't real. It's just imaginary. But look, look, notice the outcome here. Look at what happens in verse 4 to Peter's audience that they've drawn this line in the sand and now they're suffering as a result. Verse 4, he says, In all this, they, the pagan culture surrounding you, your neighbors, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. At first, Peter says, your neighbors uh, were shocked. They were surprised. They were confused by the change that that came about in your life. What's wrong with you? What are you doing? Uh, But eventually that shock became outrage. And they began to turn against you and lash out at you. And see, in that culture, um, it was considered your civic duty to participate in idol worship and perversion. It was not an opportunity that existed on the fringes of the culture. It was what made you a good citizen. And so for the Christians to turn away from that, the prevailing attitude was not, oh, you've become a Christian, that's fine, whatever you believe is fine. No, the issue for them was, we hate what you've become. And we're going to make your life miserable until you renounce this Jesus and come back over to our side. That's what they were up against here. And, of course, the, the haters were in the extreme majority, remember? This was the majority culture. And so they continued to enjoy all the benefits of their lifestyle. The culture promoted this kind of behavior. And so now the Christians became this little faction of the society. They were no longer experiencing the benefits. They were no longer considered good citizens. And so they were now maligned. They were pushed uh, into the margins. They were pushed up against the wall. You know, this still happens in certain parts of the world. We don't know this as much here, but there are places in the world right now where to become a Christian means that you lose your family, you lose your job, you lose your credibility, all of your standing, your place in the culture. It's gone now because that culture is so thoroughly dominated by another worldview or another religious belief that to become a Christian is to lose it all. But you see what verse 5 says? Peter now gives the reward. He gives the response concerning this risk. He says, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. In other words, God has not forgotten about you, and God is not somehow blindsided by this this sinful culture that you find yourself in, as if God has no resources with which to respond. Those who were denying God and persecuting his people would have to give an answer to God. It didn't seem that way in the moment. In the moment, they were enjoying all the blessings and benefits of a culture that supported their behavior. But in reality, the time was coming. The clock was ticking for them. They would have to, uh, to, to answer to God who brings righteous judgment to all people. And so this is Peter's way of reminding the church here of the greater reality. You don't see it now. You don't feel it now. You may feel completely uh, pressed into making a decision to go back into your former manner of life, but don't do it because there is coming a reckoning for evil and for righteousness. No culture gets to be the judge here. God is the only judge, and he is a righteous judge, and he will judge in righteousness. And that's important for us in understanding verse 6. Last verse we're going to look at. Um, th- these, these people are being really pushed up against the wall, and it's, you, you can't even imagine the difficulty of it. I can't. But Peter's going to remind us of the long-term reality, the outcome, the eternal destiny here. Verse 6. This is a, a difficult verse, to be honest with you, but here's what he says. He says, For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God who are the dead who have had the gospel preached to them there's some debate on this text Uh, I don't personally I don't buy into a lot of the debate I don't think there's a secret special hidden meaning right here in verse 6 I think there's a simple truth that there were Christians in the church who had died there were Christians in the church who had died before the return of Christ see that the early church they were ready for hoping for praying for the return of Christ at any moment We should be too. But he hadn't come yet. Paul addressed this issue in 1 Thessalonians about those who were in faith and they had died before the return of Christ. And frankly, the the Christians who were left behind were worried about them. What becomes of them? Uh, But Christians die. Of course, that's going to happen to you and me too. And, And this was an issue that the persecutors really harped on. All of the surrounding culture, when a Christian got sick, when a Christian died, when bad things happened, they said, ha, ha, ha. What good is your Jesus doing you? You get sick and you die just like everybody else. What's all this talk about eternal life? Look what happens to you. Same thing that happens to us. In fact, they would go so far as to say when Christians got sick and died, that was the pagan gods' punishment for rejecting them. This pantheon of lowercase g gods that were worshipped within the culture, when Christians, when bad things happened to Christians, that, that was judgment from the pagan gods, they thought. You're being judged uh, for your, uh, for your, what they considered atheism. You've left the faith and followed this crucified Messiah. But what does Peter say in verse six? He says, listen, even in death, even in the appearance perhaps of judgment, we're being judged in the flesh. Things didn't work out for us the way that the surrounding culture, um, you know, uh, thought they might, you know, eternal life. How'd that work out for you? you died just like us. But the Christian has life and victory even in death. That's, I think, what Peter's saying. Even though their persecutors viewed that death as judgment and as destruction and tragedy, for the Christian, death is vindication. Death is not the end, but it's the beginning. Every, every... uh, This, I think, would encourage us, especially if you're going through a hard time. If you are a Christian, the absolute worst things can ever get for you Is right here in this life. What you experience in this life on this side of heaven is the worst it will ever get, by far. The only thing that awaits us because of our faith in Christ is eternal grace and blessing and glory. Our future is so incredibly bright. The worst that can happen is here in this life, and no matter how bad it gets, you are vindicated in the end. And so Peter says, don't allow the present suffering to shake you into embarrassment or shame or despair, but live wholeheartedly for Jesus because his promises are sure. You will live in the spirit according to the will of God. Set your hope on heaven, not on this life. There's a lot to explain in in a passage like this in these six verses. Uh, But I promise you we'd come back around to this, for me, at least today, is our central issue, this issue of Peter's words, the time past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles. I, I want us to just focus on that land on that. Peter was speaking to Gentiles here. When he says Gentiles, he's characterizing just generally people who don't love, honor, and obey God. But that's who these people were, the church. These people, remember, they didn't grow up Christian. They didn't grow up in some sort of uh, strict you know, uh, model of religion. They grew up wild and free, just like their neighbors did. And now they've entered in the narrow gate. They've become believers and followers of Jesus. And so he's talking, Peter says, this is not just a statement of your surrounding culture. This is a statement of your own testimony. This is your life that I'm talking about. This is who you were. And I want to point us to a key word that Peter uses. It's the word desire. Desire. He says, The time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles or the desire of your sinful flesh. Peter says, When we commit sin, it is not just an activity, it's a desire. We are carrying out a desire, we're carrying out an intention that develops within our hearts. We talked a minute ago about sin, sin that we may feel helpless to stop. We also talked about sin that we kind of keep warm. We keep it on simmer. We we like to have it around. We don't see anything really wrong with it. But whatever it is, whether it's in our mind very big or very small, the root issue, the cause of it is desire. It comes from the heart. Uh, The Apostle James said it like this, James chapter one. He said, each one is... Enticed, Each one is tempted and carried away by his own lust. And, and when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Peter say, uh, James says that sin begins with desire. It begins with an inordinate wrong uh, uh, desire, or he says lust, that there's something we want that we're meant ultimately to find in God, but we, we, we seek to find it elsewhere and we end up being carried away and eventually it brings its destruction in our lives and so sin is rooted in desire we can't merely make it an outward issue or blame it on other people or blame it on our environment it begins and it ends really truly in the heart but you know what so does righteousness and here's my encouragement to us sin is a desire issue but so is righteousness when Jesus was asked what is the greatest commandment What is the most important thing that a human being has been put on this earth to do? You remember Jesus' answer? He said, the greatest commandment is this, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love God with all of your being, Jesus says. When Jesus issued the greatest commandment of all, he did not issue a command to our outward behavior. He issues a command to your heart. He goes straight for the heart because Jesus knows what we ought to know, that every single action, every word, every thought, every behavior comes ultimately from desire. It comes from the heart. And if we love God with all our hearts, what room will there be left for sin? I mean, just think logically about that. If you and I, if we love God with our whole being, what room do we leave for sinful desire? All the room's been taken up by a greater desire, by the Lord. And so, listen, I I can say this with confidence. Everybody in this room, where you're sitting, where I'm standing, we all have sin issues that we are dealing with right now. Right now. Some sins feel bigger than others. Some feel smaller. I get that. But we've all got them. And I hope we've seen through through the Scripture today that, that big or small, in our estimation, is irrelevant because Jesus died for all sin. All sin matters to God. But it goes down. Listen, it's, it's an issue deeper than our outward behavior. You can't fix it outwardly. You can't grit your teeth and make it go away. It goes down to the desire of your heart. And so the question for me and for you, do we desire the glory of God more than we desire our sin? I mean, and really, we have to, that, that's not a throwaway question for us. Do I desire, truly, do I desire loving, honoring, pleasing my Savior? more than I desire the things that I hold on to that I know dishonor him. If we don't deal with that question at the deepest level, then we're never going to really experience the newness of life that that God has called us into. I will continually call myself a Christian, and I'll feel bad about the sins in my life, but I won't actually walk away from them and burn the ships behind me because my desire is conflicted. I'm trying to give half of my heart to God and the other half to my old way of life or to the way of the culture or whatever it may be, and it doesn't work that way. Jesus said you can't serve two masters. He was talking about money, but it applies to anything. You can't serve God and something or someone else. And so we've got to live in such a way that our desires are changing more and more in the direction of Christ, not just our outward behavior. Y'all are probably smart and slick enough to fake your way through life all right, I've tried, I've tried for many years to fake my way through it. As long as y'all think I'm somebody, then I'm okay. And that is not the issue at hand here. That is self-righteousness. That is not what Jesus came to give us. He wants to change the heart. I, I, I probably have quoted this before. Uh, one of my heroes, Tim Keller, uh, says this. I think he's so spot on. I like it so much that I'm going to put it on the screen for us here. Uh, listen to this. Whatever captures the heart's trust and love also controls the feelings and behavior what the heart most wants the mind finds reasonable the emotions find valuable and the will finds doable people therefore change not merely by changing their thinking but by changing what they love most you may not agree with that i'll fight you over that one okay i believe what i believe that you and I will only change if our love changes. I've got to love Jesus Christ more than I love my sin. And I know that sounds so ridiculous when you say it out loud. Is there even, I mean, why even, why even make it a choice? And yet I do it every day. I do it every day. It's the desire that leads us in one direction or the other. Here in 1 Peter, listen, we're told arm yourselves for the purpose of suffering. Why? Because the person you love most in the world suffered for you. So you can suffer for him too if need be. Then Peter says, uh, leave your life of sin, your past life behind. It's sufficient for you to have lived it out. No longer live the way you used to. Don't live the way your dominant culture maybe accepts. Why? Because the person you love most shed his own blood for the forgiveness of those sins and to lead you into righteousness. If I love him then my desire, my taste, my palate for that stuff has to just become something detestable, right? Not something we coddle, not something we feel helpless to defeat, but something that by God's grace we can overcome. To love Jesus is to be changed to the point where my my personal comfort, your approval, human approval, those things can't charm me anymore because Jesus is my Lord and Savior. That's the way it's meant to be. Sin is no longer what it used to be to me. Our old desires have been replaced with a new desire, which is to live fully in the grace of God. That's why following Jesus means no turning back, no turning back. Not because somehow we're stuck here, but because by his love and grace, we've really truly been set free. Burn the ships. There's no going back. Why would we even want to in light of this grace that we've been given? Let's pray. Father, I'm, I'm humbled this morning by this word because it hits me in my own heart that, Lord, I so easily and quickly become comfortable with sin that I'll choose the, the approval of other people over yours. That I'll look over my shoulder to things I used to do as if as if they were doing me any good rather than turning my eyes in in love and devotion to you and so and lord i suspect that all of us know what that is even right where we sit so father god would you grant us right now a very clear picture of your grace don't let us begin with effort don't let us begin by by getting mad and trying harder. Show us your grace, Lord Jesus. The grace that, that took you to the cross. That we might see those sins forgiven. Nailed to the tree. Everything, Lord, that you and your righteousness could hold against us, you laid it upon the shoulders of your Son. And let us, Lord, see that so clearly and enjoy that grace so deeply that, that our sin becomes laughable to us. Why would we ever go back? Why would we hold on to it and keep it warm? Oh, Lord, lead us into righteousness today. Give us, Lord, a love for you that, would, that we'd be willing to suffer for you. And, Lord, that a love so deep that we, would, that we would look objectively at our own lives, at our own desires. And that we would say the time already passed is sufficient. I've had my fill, and I'm not going back. Father, we need your grace for this. We will not do this on our own. We will not make it. We will not uh, succeed in trying to polish ourselves up and make things better through our moral effort. We fall upon Jesus Christ today. And Lord, we ask you to raise us up that we might walk in newness of life. Starting right now, Father, even the little things that that nobody else knows about, give us the courage, the resolve to renounce them. I will live for my Savior. Father, give us us the kind of courage that Christianity demands. Not weak-minded, not faint-hearted, Lord, turn our faces to the cross and give us boldness to walk after our Lord and Savior. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.